Um, uh, Soph mentioned uh, the subject of my talk this afternoon. Uh, Keith asked me if I would speak on it. <coughs> and uh, it's on the subject of a man called Francis Chan. Uh, I really only looked at him in depth or started to look at him in depth about two months ago. Prior to that, I sort of knew a little bit of his name, but he'd never come across my radar, really. But what prompted it was uh, there was an announcement made that he was going to be speaking at a meeting in Coleraine University. And that meeting would actually have taken place last night. And uh, a number of people said to me, would you look into this uh, situation? And when I began to look into it, uh, I came to the conclusion that I would certainly uh, not encourage people to go to that meeting last night. Uh, I want to read just a few little verses from uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 4, and uh, I want to read uh, from verse 11 uh, through to verse 14. Uh, so Ephesians uh, chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. This is God's word. Paul writes, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Paul is concerned that believers uh, will not be sufficiently grounded in their faith and that they would be easily blown about by every wind of doctrine. And sadly, I think, as you will see, Mr. Chan has been blown about uh, in many ways, and he is seeking to blow others about uh, and embrace every wind of doctrine that he thinks is right. Uh, I want to look at Francis Chan on, under three uh, simple headings, uh, background, beliefs, and blind spots. Uh, that's what the, uh, the skeleton, the framework will be for this afternoon. So, so what is the, the background of Francis Chan? Well, he was born in 1967 in San Francisco. Uh, and that's where his name comes from. The Francis comes from San Francisco. Uh, sadly, his mother died in giving birth to him. There were complications and she died. So uh, Chan was sent off to his grandmother uh, who lived in Hong Kong and he was there for a couple of years. She was a Buddhist, uh, but then he subsequently returned back to America uh, and rejoined the family. Uh, and then his father died when he was only 12 years of age. His father had been a, a Baptist pastor who had remarried after uh, Francis's mother had died. Uh, but he too died uh, when Francis was only 12. 
Francis Chan claims that it was in his teenage years that he embraced Christ as his saviour. After he finished uh, high school, he went to uh, the Master's College where he got uh, a Bachelor of Arts uh, degree. He then went on to the Master's Seminary uh, to train in theological studies, and he ended up with a Master of Divinity uh, degree. Uh, The Master's College and the Master's Seminary uh, would have been founded by John MacArthur, uh, and uh, they would have been conservative uh, in their outlook. Uh, They would have been non-ecumenical. They would have been non-charismatic. In 1994, he married a girl called Lisa, and uh, having uh, progressed from the Master's uh, Seminary, he founded a church called Cornerstone Church. It was small at the start, but it grew to quite a sizable church. Uh, And uh, during that time, he wrote a book called Crazy Love, uh, which sold uh, more than 300,000 copies in its first year. And he also founded uh, Eternity Bible College, and he was the uh, chancellor of it from 2004 to 2010. However, in 2010, he announced his resignation from the church. It was called Cornerstone Church uh, to pursue a fresh ministry. He sort of got this idea that he didn't like being the focus of attention in the church where, where people looked to him, where people hung on every word that he preached, etc. Uh, he, he just perhaps felt the pressure uh, was too much Uh, for him. Uh, And so he resigned. Uh, As I say, he'd married a girl called Lisa, and over the period of years, they have had seven children. Uh, In 2011, he went to San Francisco, and he uh, started a a church planting network called We Are Church. And unlike his previous church, which had grown to kind of mega size, uh, he wanted We Are Church to be small groups, maybe up to 30 people or so on. Uh, he, he really didn't want uh, his uh, network to develop into mega churches. He thought this was a much better way to go. So that was in 2011. And then in 2014, he joined the board of elders of a group called Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. And he was with them for about two years as an elder. Then in 2020, he took himself and the family to Hong Kong uh, and he sought to minister in uh, quite a poor area where his late mother had actually ministered in the 1950s. Uh, The following year, 2021, he and the family, they had to leave Hong Kong because he didn't get a visa to stay on. So that's just a a very brief skeleton of his background. Uh, He professed faith as a teenager. He went to uh, a conservative seminary. He got a degree in divinity from it. He established a church, and then he moved on from that, and he has kind of bounced around a bit from one thing to another. So if that's the background, then what would be his beliefs? Well, as I said, I think it might be safe to assume that because he graduated from uh, the Master's Seminary, 
you would expect him to have emerged from there with a conservative biblical view to be non-ecumenical and non-charismatic. Well, things were to change uh, from about 2020 onwards. Uh, there was an article appeared uh, by a ministry called Pulpit and Pen. Uh, the first line was, Francis Chan brought some clarity to his journey to itinerant charismatic faith healer. Uh, he claimed that in 2020 he was in Myanmar and that he was in a village where there was absolutely no believers at all. But he discovered that when people came to him and he was laying hands on him, he said, everybody that I laid hands on was healed. And, uh, you know, this was phenomenal. This was remarkable. Uh, how true or otherwise that is, it's very difficult to ascertain. Uh, just how ill some of the people were, well, again, it's very hard to ascertain because everything was done by way of translation, etc., and a lot of things can be lost or misrepresented in the translation. However, uh, he had journeyed from his conservative, non-ecumenical, non-charismatic background into a much more open view of things. And uh, again, in 2020, some months after he'd been in Myanmar, he took part in an online conference called The Unveiling. And there were others who were contributing to that particular online conference. One was a man called Bill Johnson, uh, or perhaps I should say Apostle Bill Johnson. Uh, he is the founder of the Bethel Church in Reading in California. Uh, another was a man called David Demian. Uh, he was born in Egypt to Coptic Christian parents. Egypt and Coptic Christianity. Well, is it genuine biblical uh, Christianity? Well, I think the jury might be out on that one. And uh, he headed a ministry called Watchmen for the Nations. And he reportedly said, in this hour, we are seeing God moving throughout the nations with his longing to gather his family together in the unity Jesus prays for in John 17, 20 to 25. Uh, this is the, the go-to portion of Scripture for those who want at all costs to promote ecumenism, that they all may be one. That, that's what they, they go to. Uh, others who took part in this online conference were Diane and Mike Bickle. Uh, Mike Bickle and IHOP now, that's not the International House of Pancakes, uh, which uh, Margaret and I have eaten in a few times when we've been in Canada and America. It's the International House of Prayer. And Mike Bickle has been on the go uh, for as long as virtually I've been a Christian since 1984. Uh, he started off with a group called the Kansas City Prophets. Uh, these people were making claims to be real prophets and so on. Uh, in their ranks, they had two men. One was called Bob Jones. Uh, nothing to do with the Bob Jones of the Fundamentalist University in South Carolina. Bob Jones and Paul Kane. And these men were extolled as real prophets of God. Bob Jones uh, turned out to be uh, a man of 
dubious moral uh, character, if I could put it that way, and eventually was removed from being regarded as a reliable prophet. Uh, Bob Jones was the man who had a great influence on a man called Todd Bentley. If you've heard of Todd Bentley, 2008 Lakeland uh, revival, supposedly. And uh, a lot of these, some of these people that I've mentioned, uh, they all flew in from different parts of America to Lakeland to lay hands on Todd Bentley and commission him for the great work that he was going to do. They did that. And then about three weeks later, the wheels came off the revival because it was discovered that Todd Bentley was having an adulterous affair with one of the ladies who worked in the background and so on. But Bill Johnson was one of those who was there uh, laying hands and prophesying over Todd Bentley. But uh, Mike Bickle, and, uh, there was Bob Jones, and then there was Paul Kane, another supposed prophet. Uh, Paul Kane uh, got linked up with R.T. Kendall for a number of years in London. Uh, Kendall had succeeded Martin Lloyd-Jones and uh, Kendall regarded Paul Cain as a real prophet of God. Uh, Paul Cain was then discovered to be an alcoholic homosexual. So, uh, as I say, these prophets and so on had a very colorful track record, as I say. Uh, Bill Johnson at this online conference, he thanked all the participants. He extolled what a high view he had of Mike Bickle. And uh, this, this prompted Francis Chan to sort of chip in and say, you know, I, I really value Bill Johnston, Mike Bickle. Uh, there was a time when I was utterly opposed to their beliefs. Presumably this would have been when he came out of the master's seminary. But he said, I, I, I've changed completely. And it was due to meeting uh, a man called Jack Hayford. Uh, I think Jack Hayford died last year. Uh, Jack Hayford, his pedigree is uh, somewhat questionable. Uh, he was a great fan of Rick Warren and his Purpose Driven Life book. Uh, Jack Hayford spoke at Robert Schuller's Crystal Cathedral. Uh, Warren, totally unreliable. Schuller, even more so. But Schuller actually had a great influence on Rick Warren even though Rick Warren really never acknowledged that. But Warren went to uh, a course uh, in Schuller's Crystal Cathedral for about a year, uh, but never gave him the credit for what eventually happened with the Saddleback Church uh, that Rick Warren founded. Uh, then in a, an article in the magazine Christianity Today, uh, Jack Hayford wrote this in 2006. Uh, a less traditional means we use to encourage commitment is the Lord's Supper. We invite all the people to gather around the Lord's table and partake in small groups. We believe it is the Lord's table we are invited to. The Lord is doing the inviting. And no one is excluded. To us, that means unbelievers are invited as well. Well, I think the scriptures are clear that you eat and drink damnation to yourself if you participate at the Lord's Supper. Jack Hayford, he promoted Rome. Uh, he promoted the 
paraphrase called The Message uh, by Eugene Peterson, which is not the Word of God. It's one man's personal interpretation, if you like, of the Word of God, and it's not reliable. Uh, Jack Hayford also promoted Promise Keepers, which was big in the 1990s. Men were meeting in big stadiums and all the rest of it. And Promise Keepers had to alter their statement of faith to enable Roman Catholics to participate in it. Uh, Their statement of faith used to include by faith alone, but they took the alone out. And that meant that there was scope for Roman Catholics to take part. Uh, Jack Hayford also promoted the Alpha Course. Well, anybody who goes to my website will know that I am no fan of the Alpha Course. I'm not saying nobody has ever been converted through attending an Alpha Course, but Alpha is a powerful ecumenical tool. People used to say to me, what's wrong with the Alpha Course? I would say, well, the the Church of Rome endorses it. Do I need to say any more? Alpha is very skeletal. It just gives a very thin veneer of Christianity. Uh, And for Roman Catholics, then, they do a follow-up course where they watch videos by a priest called Father Raniero Cantalamessa. And Father Cantalamessa is no ordinary priest. He's a preacher to the papal household. That means he's fully indoctrinated. And he did a series of videos called Drinking from the Wells of the Church. Not drinking from the wells of the Word of God, the Scriptures drinking from the wells of the church. And what he did was he fleshed out the alpha skeleton with all the false teachings that you find in Rome. But Francis Chan says it was through meeting Jack Hayford that he moved from being conservative, non-ecumenical, non-charismatic to the position that he now took. Uh, That pulpit and pen article, uh, there was a few people made comments Uh, And one lady uh, made this comment, uh, no mention of Bill Johnson and Mike Bickle and his wife Diane being rank heretics. According to scripture, Chan is in apostasy because he turned away from claimed sound doctrine and turned to heretics and their heresies and then caused what they do of God, which is blasphemy. This is the context of what makes Chan's change so disastrous. So from being uh, non-charismatic, he has changed to embracing questionable uh, charismatic advocates and beliefs. And that has found full expression in his acceptance of Bill Johnson and Bethel. So what's the problem with Bill Johnson and with Bethel? Well, I have a few helpful books amongst the many that I have in my office Uh, One is called A Hidden Path by a man called uh, Rick Becker. Uh, And I want to just read uh, a few things. Uh, Basically, uh, Bill Johnson is one of the main leaders in a group called the New Apostolic Reformation. I like what John MacArthur says about it. It's not new, it's not apostolic, and it's not a reformation. And he says, it's like grape nuts. Well, when he said that, I didn't know what grape nuts were. So I had to Google it. And apparently grape nuts is uh, a North American breakfast cereal. And grape nuts, there's no grapes on it. 
and there's no nuts, but it's called, you know. So <clears throat> I like that as uh, a lightning of the New Apostolic Reformation. But in this uh, book, here's a few things that are said. One of the biggest and fastest growing venues of the New Apostolic Reformation is Bill Johnson and Bethel Church in Redding, California, which has had a tremendous effect on thousands of churches and millions of believers worldwide. Uh, and then later in the book, believers of the word of faith and the New Apostolic Reformation believe that all they have to do to get what they want is to attach the magic formula phrase, I declare and decree. In the book, The Physics of Heaven, Ellen Davis, a woman closely tied to Bill Johnson, the Bethel Church, states that she believes that God has given us the power to call things into existence. Quote from the book, It shouldn't be a stretch for us to believe that as observers to whom Jesus gave all power in heaven and earth, we can through faith, intent, prayer and declaration call things into existence. Well, that is a real mangling of the scriptures. Uh, my Bible tells me, and Jesus came and spoke unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And the great commission was to go to teach and baptize, not to decree and declare. Uh, so that was uh, another uh, comment about uh, the Bethel church. And then page 34, there's a heading, Jesus was born again. Bill Johnson teaches that Jesus was born the first time through the Virgin Mary, but because he became sin, he had to be born again in the resurrection. He had to get saved. Quote, did you know that Jesus was born again? I asked the first service and they said no, but I will show it. It's in the Bible. He had to be. He became sin. Well, whilst the Bible says that Christ became sin for us, he never became a sinner because the offering for sin had to be without blemish and without spot. And who else teaches this blasphemous born again Jesus? Kenneth Copeland, the main mouthpiece for the word of faith. And where was Kenneth Copeland preaching in January of this year? At the Bethel Church in Reading in California. And then another quote from this uh, helpful book uh, we found on page 46. The subheading is an elite group. Bill Johnson tells us what he believes about this special elite anointing. Quote, he, the Holy Spirit, lives in all believers, but the glory of his presence comes to rest on only a few. Well, you know, that's getting very close to Gnosticism. You know, the Gnostics believed that there was only a, a special elite group who had real insights into spiritual things. Quote from the book, We will carry the Elijah anointing in preparing for the return of the Lord. In the same way that John the Baptist carried the, carried the Elijah anointing and prepared the people for the coming of the Lord. Uh, and I've added a quote here. Will Bill Johnson be wearing hairy clothes and leather belts and eating locusts? Uh, but that's just my wicked sense of humor. But there you have this Bethel connection uh, set out in that particular book. There's then a very helpful book, another one. It's called Counterfeit 
Kingdom. Uh, this again deals uh, with Bill Johnson and the uh, Bethel group. And here's some quotes from it. Uh, on page 17, it starts here, Who are the new apostles and prophets? Says, In this chapter, we take a close look at two of the most influential apostles and prophets, the Apostle Bill Johnson and his right-hand man, the prophet Chris Vallotton, both from the popular and polarizing Bethel Church in Redding, California. Uh, the expansion of the kingdom, Johnson believes, is accomplished through miracles. His personal vision is for all believers to experience God's presence and to work miracles. So that's Bill Johnson. Then who is Chris Vallotton? Uh, partnering with Bill Johnson is Chris Vallotton, the church's chief prophet. In 1985, uh, Vallotton claims that God told him that he had a special calling on his life. Quote, Jesus walked into my bathroom amid my evening bath and told me, I have called, called you to be a prophet to the nations. In 1998, Vallotton was invited by Johnson to join him at Bethel and start the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. Uh, and this is one of the main vehicles they have for drawing people into their clutches, the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. One of the authors of this book is a lady called Holly Pivak. And uh, chapter three, she headed it, Hogwarts for Christians. Uh, now, uh, you may know, or you may not know, Hogwarts was where uh, the boy uh, in the... Um, I am there, uh, went to learn to become a, a, a magician and so on. So she says, it's the first day of Prophecy Week at the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. There are only three rules in this class, the teacher began. Rule one, get drunk. Rule two, stay drunk. Rule three, get other people drunk. Now they're not talking about alcohol. They're talking about being drunk in the spirit. In other words, falling about, toppling over all the rest of it. You know, there's no new thing under the sun. In the 1990s, you had the so-called Toronto Blessing. And exactly the same claims were being made for people to be drunk in the spirit. And they kept referring to what happened on the day of Pentecost when the disciples, in particular Peter, were preaching and people were saying, oh, they're drunk. Well, as I say, before I was converted, uh, I had a, a close friendship with alcohol. So I know a little bit about being drunk. And when you're drunk, your mental faculties are diminished, your physical faculties are diminished. But what happened to Peter? He was standing up with the other apostles and he was preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ and him crucified. He was certainly not drunk as these people would understand it. So Holly says, I was smack dab in the middle of Bethel Church's Firestarters class, a 12-week course designed to create modern-day revivalists. Uh, and then she goes on to say later, what especially caught my attention that day, what really troubled me 
in fact, were the techniques used by these novice prophets and their trainers. In other words, they're trying to teach young people how to become prophets. The activation of their supernatural gifts fits a disturbing pattern. Bethel's teaching on how to activate prophetic gifts resembled the New Age attempts to awaken psychic powers. In no way did the prophesying I saw at Bethel resemble prophesying found in the Bible. During my Bethel visit, I observed that the activation of supernatural gifts in individuals had more in common with New Age occult practices than with biblical Christianity. And that's the reality. Uh, These people are inducting young people into the world of the occult. This is not the Holy Spirit at work. This is another spirit entirely. (coughs) So that's the man that Francis Chan wants to unite with. The likes in particular of Bill Johnson and the Bethel Church, etc. So he's moved from his non-charismatic to extreme hyper-charismatic. Well, then what about his previous non-ecumenical position? Well, in 2018, uh, he gave a talk to Catholics at a One Thing conference. Uh, It's charismatic stroke ecumenical. Uh, It's organized by Mr. Bickle of the IHOP. And uh, during that event, Francis Chan was prayed over by multiple Roman Catholic priests. So you can see that in 2018, he's beginning to shift his position. Then in 2021, he spoke uh, at a meeting organized by Focus. What is Focus? The Fellowship of Catholic University Students. Uh, These are people who seek to do outreach around the world on university campuses to encourage people to become Roman Catholics. Uh, It was founded in 1997 at a Benedictine college in uh, Kansas. And what FOCUS does is, is it takes people who have graduated and then it sort of takes them on an intense training course on what the Catholic Church believes and practices. And then it sends these people out in teams of maybe four or six to various campuses around the world. Uh, And these young missionaries, they sign up for a two-year stint doing this. Uh, And when I was reading this, I thought, this is very similar to Mormonism. You know, when Mormon missionaries have done their intense training at Brigham Young University or something like that, then they're dispatched around the world in twos. And uh, I'm sure you've maybe met them somewhere in the south of Ireland here. Uh, I've encountered them quite often uh, up in the north uh, and so on. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, I came across uh, an article by uh, a girl who was originally from Ireland. She's called Kitty Askow. And uh, the heading is, What I Learned from a Stint as a Campus Missionary. Uh, This was published in the Catholic Herald in 2019. These are just a few excerpts. I decided to become a fellowship of Catholic University Students Focus Ministry at the Focus Student Leadership Summit 
in 2018. Shortly before this, I had been a science student. I had been trying to live a life with a thumb in each of two very different pies, the Catholic and the worldly. What if you gave everything? was a speaker's question that both haunted and excited me. At the conference, I was given a last-minute opportunity to be interviewed as a focused missionary. Five months later, I arrived at Ave Maria University in Florida for new staff training. We attended lectures from top Catholic academics and personalities. In August 2018, I arrived at Oklahoma State University. I lived with my three female teammates and our two male teammates lived nearby. We were hosting Bible studies and large events, running a discipleship program. The overall approach was simple. Win, build, send. First, and on a broad scale, we attempted to win students over. Next, we sought to build. You invited a student to a Bible study. These are Focus's main gateway for introducing students to faith. Finally, there was sending. Focus spreads its apostolate through spiritual multiplication. It involves each missionary investing deeply in two or three students and teaching them how to invest in a few others. Focus was started by Curtis Martin. In 2004, he and his wife, Michael Ann, were awarded the Benamorente Medal by Pope John Paul II for their outstanding service to the church. In 2011, Benedict XVI appointed Curtis as a consultor to the Pontifical Council for promoting the new evangelization. By 2022, Focus estimates it will have had 75,000 students involved in its ministry. So this is a real push by Rome using students to seek to win others to Christ. A um, number of weeks ago, uh, a friend in England informed Margaret and I that their son, who had studied at Queen's University, had converted to Roman Catholicism. He, he came from a, a solid initial Baptist background. Then when he came to Belfast, he uh, linked himself up with the Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, who would uh, only sing unaccompanied psalms. Uh, he then, after he had graduated, went back to England, and I think he was involved in Anglican circles, and now he has fully embraced Roman Catholicism. Uh, I think in an email to one of his friends, I said, it seems as if he's had a pinball pilgrimage He's sort of bouncing around from one to the other. He's being blowing, blown around by every wind of doctrine. Uh, I spoke to our own minister just a week or so ago, and I asked him, have you ever heard of Focus? He said, yes, I have. Because when you go on the Focus website, it gives you details of the campuses around the world where they have representation. And when you click on United Kingdom... There's only one place comes up, Queen's University, Belfast. And that's where that young man attended. Now, whether they had some input into his eventual conversion, I don't know. But our minister told us that on one occasion, about eight 
focus missionaries turned up at our church one Sunday evening. He said they were very well dressed, well turned out. He said, but it was clear their object was to assess uh, the caliber of the church, you know, where, what they believed and so on and so forth. But it just shows you there is a real push on by the students group to evangelize all around the world. So, uh, as I say, Francis Chan, uh, he was moving in Catholic circles. Uh, and then in January of 2020, uh, he began to publicly investigate his stance on the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, uh, basically transubstantiation as understood in Romanism. And uh, he also uh, shared it not only in a sermon, but there's video of him in discussion with two men. One is a man called Hank Hanegraaff and the other was Athanasius Johann. Hank Hanegraaff <coughs> had been involved in the ministry of the late Dr. Walter Martin, who was a cult expert. Uh, he wrote a bestseller decades ago called Kingdom of the Cults, looked at the likes of Mormonism, JWs, etc. And Hank Hanegraaff kind of succeeded him uh, in that ministry. When he was alive, Walter Martin was known as the Bible Answer Man. He would be uh, on the radio and people would phone in with questions and he would ask them. And when he died, then Hanegraaff took over that role. And Hanegraaff was associated with the publication of a very book, good book called Christianity in Crisis, which examined in depth the uh, word of faith, health and wealth gospel and quotes lots of the people associated with that, Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, and, and so on and so forth. However, Hank Hanegraaff uh, shocked the professing Christian world on Palm Sunday back in 2017 when he was chrismated at St. Nectarius Greek Orthodox Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. I have to be careful with chrismated that I don't say cremated. Uh, it was chrismated. So what is chrismation? Well, it's basically an anointing and it's the name given in Eastern Orthodoxy to what is known as confirmation in the Roman Catholic Church. It was basically his entrance into the Eastern Orthodox Church. You know, what a, what a journey from being the Bible answer man and so on to this. Uh, there's a very helpful website called Got Questions that you can very often go to. And when it's uh, saying about the Eastern Orthodox Church, it says this, Orthodox distinctives that are in conflict with the Bible include the equal authority of church tradition and scripture, that's just like Rome, the perpetual virginity of Mary, just like Rome, prayers for the dead, just like Rome, baptism of infants without reference to individual responsibility and faith, just like Rome, the possibility of receiving salvation after death, just like Rome, you do your spell in purgatory and then you get on. And it ends up the Orthodox Church does not speak with a clear message that can be harmonized with the biblical gospel. So, as I say, uh, Francis Chan, he was in discussion uh, with Hank Hanegraaff and this other chap. And it was amazing what he said in the course of that discussion. 
This is what he said. I didn't know that for the first 1,500 years of church history, everyone saw it as the literal body and blood of Christ. And it wasn't until 500 years ago that someone popularized the thought that it's just a symbol and nothing more. I didn't know that. I thought, whoa, that's something to consider. For 1,500 years, I was, it was never one guy and his pulpit being the center of the church. It was the body and blood of Christ. Well, I don't know what church history Francis Chan was uh, studying, but what he said there is simply not true. To assert that for the first 1,500 years, everyone believed it was the literal body and blood of Christ is to spread untruths. And he says it's never about some man in the middle in a pulpit, etc. Well, what was Paul's instruction to young Timothy when he was confronted with challenges? It was preach the word. Uh, Paul didn't say to him, well, what you need to do is observe communion and just eat the body and drink the blood. And don't forget that in the early part of the first Corinthians, Paul wrote, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So is it true that for 1500 years, everybody believed it was the literal body and blood of Christ? Well, it's not. I have a book called The Scarlet Woman, written by some chap called uh, Keith Malcolmson. You may be familiar with it, but this is what he said. The Waldensians generally trace their reception of the gospel back to the days prior to Constantine. That's the fourth century. It was an ancient movement that was preserved by God for centuries before sending missionaries into many European countries. The reformers in Germany and Switzerland rejoiced in hearing of this ancient movement that had remained so faithful to the word of God. In 1532, they met with leaders of the Reformation at the Synod of Chamferan and united in the work of God. So there's one early group who didn't go down that line. I have another book back home called The Noble Army of Heretics. Uh, it was written by a man called Bill Jackson. He's now uh, in glory. He headed up a ministry, CEC, Christians Evangelizing, Evangelizing Catholics. And this is what he wrote. The noble lesson of the Waldenses is translated and given to us in never failing light by, by R.M. Stevens. They begin their statement of faith by admonishing all to search the scriptures to find God's truth. They clearly state the fundamentals, champion justification by faith and Bible reading, reject images, relics, purgatory, celibacy, confession, and papal supremacy. They did not mention transubstantiation because the noble lesson was written before that doctrine was defined in the Fourth Lateral Council of 1215. You see, it wasn't until 1215 that the doctrine of transubstantiation was officially promoted by uh, Rome. Uh, one website says the council sanctioned the word transubstantiation as a correct expression of Eucharistic doctrine. The teachings of the Cathars and Waldenses were condemned. 
well, who were the Cathars? Well, from the Encyclopedia Britannica, it says, from the 1140s, the Cathars were an organized church. About 1149, the first bishop established himself in the north of France. By the turn of the century, there were 11 bishoprics in all. The Cathar doctrine struck at the roots of Orthodox Christianity, in other words, Catholicism. And what does it say about the Waldenses? The Waldenses departed from the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church by rejecting some of the seven sacraments. The confession of sins was guided by their leaders, but did not require a priest. They rejected the use of indulgences. Baptism was to be by full immersion in water and not administered to infants. Eventually, the elements of the Eucharist, bread and wine, were understood as symbols only, and the Waldenses denied the doctrine of transubstantiation. They also rejected the notion of purgatory and of prayers for the dead. They accepted the Bible as the sole total authority of all doctrine. So there are several groups who clearly did not agree with the idea of the body and blood being uh, in the elements. Uh, back in 2018, uh, I was in uh, America. I was in the North Carolina region, and uh, the minister of a church where I was speaking, he, he took me to a town called Valdez, and there there was the legacy of many Waldensians who'd come to America, and uh, I was able to pick up uh, copies of statements of faith from the Waldensians. And uh, in 1120, uh, this was part of their statement of faith. We also believe that after this life, there are but two places, one for those who are saved, the other for the damned, which two we call paradise and hell, wholly denying that imaginary purgatory of Antichrist invented in opposition to the truth. Moreover, we have ever regarded as an unspeakable abomination before God the masses. We acknowledge no sacraments as of divine appointment, but baptism and the Lord's Supper. And from Article 12, we maintain that believers may be saved without these signs when they have neither place nor opportunity of observing them. Of course, Rome's uh, catechism says that uh, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. Then, a 1544 statement by the Waldenses. We hold that the Lord's Supper is a commemoration of and thanksgiving for the benefits which we have received by his sufferings and death and that it is to be received in faith and love. It's a commemoration. It's not the sacrifice of the Mass. Bill Jackson, in his book, The Noble Army of Heretics, he mentions some others who rejected transubstantiation. The Berengarians were followers of Berengarius of Tours who died in 1088. He taught that the substance of bread and wine remain unchanged. There's a leading Catholic apologist called Carl Keating and uh, he credits Berengarius as being the first theologian of note to oppose the doctrine of transubstantiation, which was in the stage of development in the 11th century. So this is well before the 1500 timescale. 
Uh, another book that I have is called Antichrist Exposed. It's by a man called Dr. Ronald Cook. And he said this, Following the advent of the new millennium, certain preachers arose in France who preached the true gospel. Peter de Bruce was a follower of Berengarius. That's the one we've just considered. De Bruce appeared around the year 1100 and was considered a reformer by some and a heretic by Rome. He labored from about 1105 to 1126 when he was apprehended and burned at the stake by the Church of Rome because of his views. The abbot of Cluny, that would be a Roman Catholic abbot, wrote a treatise against de Bruce and his followers in which he charged them with several heresies. The chief of these were, they did not believe in the efficacy of prayers for the dead, in the veneration of crucifixes, and in transubstantiation. Now, all these things that I've just shared with you, they are evidence that what Francis Chan said, that for the first 1,500 years of church history, everyone saw it as the literal body and blood of Christ. It is simply not true. And unfortunately, he is getting too many opportunities to promote what is not true. So we've looked at his background, his beliefs. What about his blind spots? Well, the truth is that Francis Chan, he fails to discern that someone like Bill Johnson, who aligns himself with Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, and Todd Bentley, is not someone for genuine Christians to be united with. Another truth is that Francis Chan fails to discern that when it comes to Roman Catholicism, no faithful Christian can be united with it in the cause of proclaiming the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's on this crusade to promote unity. But as I've said to a few people today, it is unity at the expense of truth, not in the truth. But there's also a practical blind spot with his thinking on the mass and transubstantiation. Uh, a number of years ago, I did a televised debate uh, with a Roman Catholic spokesperson called Peter Williams. And it was on the subject of the mass and transubstantiation. And what I said to Peter Williams was this. The miracles that we read of in the Bible, every one of them was verifiable by one of our natural senses. When the Lord turned the water into wine, you could taste the difference. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, you could see that he was alive. You could touch him and see that he was alive. I said, but you're expecting people to believe in the miracle of transubstantiation, that bread and wine have somehow become the body, blood, soul, divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you taste the bread, it still tastes like bread. And if you drink the wine, it still tastes like wine. There is absolutely no way you can verify what Rome claims with any of your senses. Over the years, I worked several times with a man called Jim McCarthy. 
he was based in America, but I think he maybe originally came from Ireland. He used to minister over here, certainly at times. And he wrote a little booklet called The Mass from Mystery to Meaning. And uh, this is what he wrote. When the Son of God became a man, he took upon himself human flesh. Holy communion is eating Christ's physical body. Why would God want us eating human flesh? Why would he want us drinking human blood? Is this reasonable? Is this scriptural? The drinking of blood is repeatedly forbidden in the scriptures, including the New Testament. You find that in the Council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 and verse 29. And it says also the apostles were strict Jews who would not think of eating anything but kosher food. And for a Jew, you cannot find a food more unclean than blood. And that was Peter's claim in Acts 10 when he had the vision. He says, I've never eaten anything unclean. So this idea that somehow you eat the actual body and blood of Christ and that will have some spiritual benefit for you, it flies in the face of what Jesus went on to say. This is what Jim McCarthy wrote. Jesus taught, hear and understand, not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? Whatever you eat just passes through and out it goes. He says, if eating cannot defile us, then how can it sanctify us? Some do not think that the mass needs to be reasonable. It is a mystery just accepted by faith, they declare. But the scriptures never call it a mystery. Why should me? We looked at a mystery this morning about the timing and the transformation of our bodies at the resurrection. But there's no mystery concerned to the Lord's Supper. The Mass, as described by the Catholic Church, is not in the Bible. The Mass is not only unreasonable, it is unscriptural. So that was from a little booklet that Jim McCarthy wrote called The Mass from Mystery to Meaning. He also wrote a much larger book called The Gospel According to Rome. And this was a, a direct uh, sort of reaction to the 1994 Catholic Catechism that was published. And uh, this is what uh, he, he says in this. Neither is there a biblical precedent for a miracle in which God expects the faithful to believe that something supernatural has occurred, when in fact all outward evidence indicates that nothing at all has occurred. God has never dealt with people in that way. The law of Moses strictly forbade Jews from drinking blood, Leviticus 17, 10 to 14. Had the disciples drunk Christ's blood at the Last Supper, Peter could not have claimed months later, I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Additionally, the council at Jerusalem could not have instructed Gentile Christians to abstain from blood if Christians routinely drank Christ's blood at the Lord's Supper. Immediately after the Lord uh, is himself, you know, when he was instituting things, he referred to uh, it as wine. The Lord said, but I say unto you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, 
you know, this is, he'd been at the Last Supper and drunk the wine. He said, but I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day that when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord Jesus is spiritually omnipresent, but he has only one bodily presence. He is now bodily seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And uh, again, going on to what the Lord said in John chapter 16, Jim McCarthy says, A study of Christ's teaching that night, that's at the Last Supper, reveals several figures of speech. For example, Jesus referred to the new covenant figuratively saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The cup was obviously not the covenant itself, but the symbol of the covenant. Additionally, following the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples, quote, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, or as the AV says, proverbs. An hour is coming when I speak no more to you in proverbs or figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. <coughs> uh, for the definition of proverbs, I, I went to Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament words, and it said, Proverbs equals a parable equals figurative discourse or language. It was figurative, the Lord was saying. You know, they talk about the sacrifice of the Mass. And in a Roman say, where, where it's not a, a new sacrifice, but what they're claiming is that it's a perpetuation of the sacrifice of Calvary. But Paul wrote in Romans, Therefore Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. And in a sacrifice, there has to be a death of a victim or the host. So how can I close? Very simply, I'd first of all say, Francis Chan's crusade for unity, it's no doubt well-intentioned. He's passionate about what he believes. He's a good communicator. But that doesn't absolve him from the error of the crusade that he's on because his crusade, it is ill-conceived. It's like in Proverbs 14, 12, it says, there's a way it seems right unto a man, but the end are off are the ways of death. And also his crusade is flagrantly unscriptural. Ephesians 5, 11 says, we're to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. <coughs> I mentioned this morning I like J.C. Ryle. Uh, he said this, Unity is a mighty blessing, but it is worthless if it is purchased at the cost of the truth. And that's true. Uh, Francis Chan's ministry is called Crazy Love Ministries. I have to confess, I don't like the expression crazy love. This is basically how he describes, if you like, God's plan of salvation, that it's crazy love. It's amazing love. It's beyond human understanding. But to label something that God does as crazy, that doesn't grab me at all. Anyhow, he wrote that book called Crazy Love, which sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And uh, I have a good friend in Springfield in Illinois, Pastor Gary Gilley. Uh, he wrote some very helpful books a number of years ago about the seeker-sensitive movement. 
this little church went to market, this little church stayed home and so on. And he has written loads of book reviews uh, on his website called Think on These Things. Uh, And he did a review of Crazy Love and this is what he said. Crazy Love lacks balance, solid arguments and careful exegesis, draws bad conclusions, is poorly written and redundant, skips from topic to topic with little explanation, is inconsistent and contradictory, comes across arrogantly, motivates by fear and guilt, and offers outlandish and in some cases clearly unbelievable stories. So this is the book that Francis Chan wrote of which there are hundreds of thousands in circulation. So what does the Bible say about someone like Francis Chan? Well, I think Paul summed it up neatly in Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. He said this, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. And that is my advice. If anybody's thinking about Francis Chan, avoid him. Uh, I feel sad that he has gone down this line and unfortunately he is seeking to lead others down the same line also. But we cannot unite with the likes of Bill Johnson whose NAR is introducing people to basically the occult and also to uh, unite with Rome who are the arch opponents of the truth of the gospel. We know that when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we're born again, we are justified. That means we're perfectly, permanently pardoned. It's a legal decision that God puts upon us. You're justified. But for Rome, it's a process. Begins with baptism. And it goes on all through the life. It's like snakes and ladders. You're justified one day and then you're back down again. You're non-justified. And you've got to get back into the sacraments. And the result is you never know for certain that when you die, you're going to be with Christ, which is far better. And if you claim to know and believe that, you're guilty of a mortal sin, the sin of presumption, which will in fact take you straight to hell. And these are the people that Francis Chan wants us to unite with. And my advice is, where he is concerned, avoid him. May God bless what we have considered.